This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you spending some of your time with us on this summer day. The word empire, for many around the world, seems to have become almost a dirty word. It's a part of history that's often viewed as regrettable and shameful. But in the European Union, many policymakers love the legacy of the Holy Roman Empire that has risen up on their territory so many times before. And they're actually determined to revive that gargantuan entity one more time. So for our first story of the show today, we'll hear about the details of these European calls to revive the Holy Roman Empire in a report from trumpet writer Josue Michels. From there, we'll take a look at the new movie Sound of Freedom. This film chronicles efforts to save children from sex trafficking rings in Colombia, and it's taking over box offices, playing in thousands of theaters and making millions of dollars. But instead of praising this film for exposing the truth about this very real, very dark issue, the corporate media is insisting that the movie over-dramatizes child exploitation. We'll hear all about this in a report from trumpet writer Andrew Miller. The third segment today will go in a different direction, examining Russia's Wagner mercenary group. Wagner has become famous over the last year and a half or so for the major role that it has played in Russia's war against Ukraine, and most recently for its attempted coup against the Russian government. But this mercenary group has actually been on the scene for years, long before the full-scale war on Ukraine, and it has had a particularly large footprint in certain African nations. So now that the Wagner group's fate is in question following the mutiny, this could have major implications for Africa, and it could open the way for other players to take on a greater role in those nations. We'll learn the details of this in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. And then our last word today is about the lunar landing, which happened during this week in history, and we'll consider what we can learn from that out-of-this-world accomplishment. So that'll be at the end of the program, and we'll begin now with Europe's longing to rebuild its empires in this report from Josue Michels. Without outside intervention, Europe today would likely be ruled by some form of dictatorship. But that doesn't stop European leaders from drawing inspiration from their history. What inspired European leaders in the past is inspiring them again. Politicians in the European Union to local administrators are reviving the legacy of the Holy Roman Empire. The Telegraph wrote on June 15th, The idea of empire as an organizing form of politics is enjoying a rehabilitation in Brussels, pushed by the court philosophers and picked up avidly by exponents of a muscular sovereign Europe to match China and America. Think tanks and academics are pointing to the Habsburg-led Holy Roman Empire as a model the EU should follow. A much-referenced 22 Dutch book reads, It doesn't get any better a journey through the Habsburg Empire and the European Union. Of course, looking at the Habsburg Empire as a model of stability isn't the same as calling for the resurrection of the Inquisition that killed heretics, Muslims, Jews and others. Praising the empire's form of government is also not the same as praising its violent episodes of warfare. But one ought to ask, can you have one without the other? Part of the relative stability the empire brought was through the use of violence. Some even now believe that this aspect of empire needs to be revived. Another book that is circulating in the EU argued that the EU should embrace the heroic civilizing mission. He said anyone who thinks that good may be imposed itself, the book reads, anyone who thinks that good may impose itself on the world without struggle or the use of power is mistaken. That may require an army, a Napoleon. 
This nostalgia for Europe's past is not a coincidence. In 2018, the EU started a new project to remember the continent's cultural heritage. That year, over 6.2 million people took part in more than 11,700 organized events across 37 countries, each celebrating the European Year of Cultural Heritage. Thousands of similar events have been hosted since. In 2017, former German Defense Minister Karl Theodor zu Guttenberg responded to the refugee crisis by calling for the revival of Europeans' love for history and culture. He said, When we are not ready to love our culture, then others will start to define our culture. And it can't be our goal to leave. That what grew over centuries and is seen in the church towers, which is seen in the club culture, which is grown in a Christian Jewish Western society to others that come in to us. End of quote. Of course, upholding the traditions of a Christian Jewish Western society sounds good. But is that really Europe's history? European leaders in the Catholic Church have repeatedly clashed with Jews, pogroms, inquisitions, crusades and the Holocaust, targeted Jewish life and even sought to extinguish the Jewish people. This happened in the name of Christianity, in the name of the churches, in the name of the club culture. This is as much part of Europe's history as temporary phases of peaceful coexistence. Many want to overlook the grotesque part of this history when calling for its revival. The question is, is it possible to promote the one without the other? Last month, party leader of the Alternative for Deutschland, Tino Schapulla, told the right-wing blog Secession, I find it fundamentally problematic to always link commemoration with the question of guilt. Germany's view of its history has to change, he explained. Historical guilt should no longer determine the way we act. But history itself warns against venerating the heritage of the Holy Roman Empire. Adolf Hitler, for example, praised the late 8th century ruler Charlemagne. According to professor and renowned German medieval researcher Johannes Fried, Hitler's statements were preparing for his own acts of violence. To praise Charles was a strategy of legitimacy. Of course, it's absurd today to call Hitler a great example for Europe. But the truth is, Europe's history is filled with mass murderers who inspired Hitler. Those same individuals were inspired by others before them. If Charlemagne Otto the Great or Napoleon Bonaparte were alive today, they would be called intolerant, bloody dictators equal to or worse than Russian President Vladimir Putin. With modern weaponry, they would likely be even more dangerous than Adolf Hitler. Charlemagne ordered the execution of 4,500 Saxons in a single day, quite a feat before the invention of gunpowder and poison gas. Yet Europe is celebrating him and other leaders. On May 5th, 2021, France commemorated the 200th anniversary of the death of Napoleon Bonaparte. In response to criticism, French President Emmanuel Macron said, Napoleon is part of us. That sums up how many in Europe view their past rulers. In 2018, Aachen Cathedral held a week-long festival that heavily featured the cathedral's founder, Charlemagne. The event was attended by 73,000 people. Charlemagne united Europe through war and conversion by the sword. Yet he became the role model for later emperors and the imperial crown of the Holy Roman Empire was made in his honor. When then Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz held the rotating presidency of the EU, he made this crown the key feature of its associated cultural program. 
Ever since, Austria and Europe have emphasized their history more and more. In 2019, Austria celebrated the Maximilian year, honoring the 500th anniversary of the death of Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I. The Catholic Church and Austrian authorities organized over 100, 100 celebratory masses and other events. The Catholic news service Crux wrote at the time, quote, The country's decision to publicly honor a former Catholic ruler who died January 12, 1519, marks a noteworthy change in mainstream Austrian culture, which has sought to distance the country from its Christian past and national history in recent decades. Austria even hosted a special exhibition, The Emperor's New Saint, Maximilian I and Markgraf Leopold III in Times of Changing Media. The exhibition showed how Maximilian I venerated Leopold III, ruler of Austria. But why did he do it? The World of the Habsburgs website explains The ruling monarch saw himself as a successor of the saints, whose reliquaries served as attributes at the ruler's accession as a sign of legitimate, divinely ordained sovereignty. This is some profound insight from history about why European leaders honor past emperors. They see themselves as successors of the saints. There are parallels between the Habsburgs' veneration of Leopold III and the Holy Roman Empire's level of power. The more they venerated Leopold, the more powerful and violent the empire became. Cherishing the heritage unified its citizens of the empire in confrontations with Turks, Protestant reformers and Jews. In 2018, Gutenberg was invited to speak at a festival For the traditional regional Austrian holiday, St. Leopold's Day, he said, in Germany it would not be possible to print St. Leopold on the front page of the invitation. We would have a month-long debate on whose toes we could possibly step on by doing so. But Gutenberg may be biased. In 1663, St. Leopold was promoted as the patron saint in all the lands of Austria, by his namesake, Leopold I, who also elevated the Gutenberg dynasty to the status of Reichsfreiherr, which translates to Baron of the Empire. Gutenberg himself is a descendant of another Leopold, Holy Roman Empire Leopold II. Many Germans still view the history critically, but in 2023 they are celebrating Otto the Great. The Roman Emperor and King of the East Frankish Empire died 1050 years ago. The Roman Emperor and King of East Frankish Empire died 1050 years ago on May 7, 973, to commemorate his legacy. The Memleben Monastery and Imperial Palace Museum hosted special tours sharing findings of recent archaeological projects and research. Germany's Welt wrote, Otto I, from the dynasty of the Leodolfing, was not just any regent. He is historically as important as Charlemagne. The ruler united the individual tribes above all in the fight against the Magyars, who had been plundering and murdering through Europe for decades. In the Battle of the Lechfeld, Near Augsburg, Otto is said to have wielded the Holy Lands against the wild hordes in 955, a weapon that is now exhibited in Vienna's treasury and is said to contain a nail from Christ's cross. Otto the Great is yet another ruler who used his Catholic faith to legitimize bloodshed. He laid the foundation of the Holy Roman Empire of German nation. His subjects praised him as the head of the whole world, the Welt concluded. This indeed has been the goal of the Holy Roman Empire and the Catholic Church. 
Can you praise the one and overlook the other? The history of these rulers is explained in detail in our book, The Holy Roman Empire and Prophecy. I encourage you to request a free copy of this book that sheds light on the history of these rulers in a way that you have likely never considered before. Europe today wants to resurrect the heritage of the Holy Roman Empire. But it's this very heritage that has inspired unmatched bloodshed. What's more, the Bible reveals it will happen yet again. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fluey explained this Revelation 17 prophecy in the Holy Roman Empire goes public big time. In verse 10 we read in Revelation 17, And there are seven kings, five are fallen and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. This verse is key to understanding the timing of the next resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. God says that after five are fallen, he would send someone to explain this prophecy. This was Herbert W. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong came on the scene as Adolf Hitler was leading the sixth resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, which is the one is in verse 10. When the meaning of Revelation 17 was revealed during the time of the sixth resurrection, the seventh resurrection had not yet come. Today, however, the revival of that empire is happening. And remarkably, as they are reviving it, Europeans are doing something they have never done since the vile and murderous sixth head. They are publicizing the Holy Roman Empire. They don't publicize what Adolf Hitler did. Too many people remember that bloody history. Instead, they cloak it in the tradition of Charlemagne. And yet it is the same history. Not as many people died in the First Reich, because they didn't have the same military technology then, but it's the same ambition. We all need traditions and heritage. We all need a good understanding of history. But this understanding should include understanding that venerating the culture of the Holy Roman Empire is leading to the repetition of its crimes. This is Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3 FM. Thank you once again for joining us on the show today. Well, you may have heard about the new movie, Sound of Freedom. It has just surpassed two massive franchise sequels in the box office this past weekend, and it's broken several other notable records. It has grossed $85 million so far, which is the most an independent film has reached in some time. And it's all about a very real and very tragic issue, the sex trafficking of children in third world nations. And you might expect the pundits in American media to celebrate this film for the evil that it's exposing. But instead, many in the mainstream media are insisting that the movie just overdramatizes child exploitation, as we'll hear all about now in this report from Andrew Miller. The movie Sound of Freedom is taking over box offices. The surprise hit inspired by the real-life exploits of Tim Ballard has already made more than $40 million and is currently playing in 2,850 theaters. The film follows Ballard's efforts to save children from sex trafficking rings in Colombia. Yet instead of applauding this film for exposing the truth about this very real issue, the corporate media is insisting that the movie overdramatizes child exploitation. Over one million children are sold for sex around the world each year, and roughly 10% of these are American children. 
you would think this tragedy would unite liberals and conservatives. Yet strangely, corporate media outlets are attacking this film for making it look like child sex trafficking is a bigger problem than it actually is. The Guardian labeled the film a paranoid new movie and a QAnon adjacent thriller. Meanwhile, Rolling Stone reported the QAnon-tinged thriller about child sex trafficking is designed to appeal to the conscience of a conspiracy-addled boomer. And the Washington Post suggested that the story ties into theories that global elites are kidnapping children, having sex with them, and harvesting their blood. Now, these are strange things to say about a film based on a true story. Yet the corporate media gets uncomfortable anytime a national spotlight is shown on child sex trafficking. The core of the so-called QAnon conspiracy theory is that a cabal of satanic child molesters has hijacked the U.S. government. Sound of Freedom is undoubtedly popular with the 15% of the U.S. population that sympathizes with QAnon. Yet just because the QAnon crowd likes the film does not mean that its message against sex trafficking is unimportant. If anything, the corporate media's hatred for this film might indicate that QAnon is more right than many want to admit. It's not like Sound of Freedom tried to unmask pedophile rings in Hollywood or Washington, D.C., it simply highlighted a story about a U.S. Homeland Security agent saving some children from a Colombian cartel. It was only two years ago that CNN fired veteran producer John Griffin for attempting to induce minors to engage in unlawful sexual activity. And Griffin was not the only person linked to CNN arrested for sex crimes that year. Rick Selby, a former senior producer on Jake Tapper's The Lead, was also arrested for sex crimes against minors. So you can see why a network like CNN might not want people focusing on child sex trafficking. The Wall Street Journal also recently published an expose on how Mark Zuckerberg's social media service Instagram uses algorithms that connect and promote a vast network of accounts devoted to child sex material making it obvious why a social media company like Meta Knight might not want people focusing on child sex trafficking. Regardless of what the corporate media says about Sound of Freedom, there are at least 100,000 American children sold into sexual slavery each year. And not all of them are bought and sold by drug cartels. Many are groomed by influential people like John Griffin and Rick Selby. Sex trafficking is not a conspiracy theory to be mocked. It is a sobering tragedy, and in the Old Testament of the Bible, the prophet Joel warned, For behold, in those days and at that time, I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and will plead them there for my people and for the heritage Israel, which is scattered among the nations, and parted my land. They have cast lots for my people and given a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. That verse is in Joel 3 verses 1 through 3. And it shows that if America does not repent of its sins and purge its wicked leaders, a time is coming when girls will be sold for a glass of wine. Normally, this type of purge would take a civil war, but God promises in 2 Kings 14, 26 through 28, and Amos 7 and verse 8, that he will temporarily save America. Donald Trump, the Make Again, sorry, Donald Trump, the Make America Great Again movement, and the QAnon movement, and many other political independent movements are fighting to expose the corruption that the corporate media want covered. And the Bible shows that they will meet with some success. But this is the last time God spares America before our sins plunge the nation into even greater tribulation.
listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Jeremiah Jacques. Russia's increasingly famous private military company called the Wagner Group aborted its coup attempt against the Russian government last month. And now the future of the Wagner Group is very much in question. This means that the African nations that Wagner has long worked to control could soon have big power vacuums, vacuums that other players will be eager to fill as we'll hear about now in this report from Mihailo Zekic. When Russia's mercenary Wagner Group attempted its coup against the Russian government on June 23rd, many wondered what this would mean for Russia's war effort in Ukraine. Wagner has been behind many of Russia's recent battlefield successes, after all, and now that what Wagner's future will look like is in doubt, the war could see a potential change in direction. But Ukraine is not the only country Wagner is involved in. Wagner has a large footprint in certain African countries, and with the group's future all of a sudden murky, its operations in Africa could be over, or at least take an unexpected turn. This could leave serious power vacuums in various conflicts in Africa. Now, some background, Wagner is on paper a private military company with roughly 30,000 mercenaries, though it got the majority of its funding from the Russian state. It was established by Russian President Vladimir Putin and his now-alienated associate Yevgeny Prigozhin as a way to deploy Russian soldiers around the world without directly implicating the government. Africa, of course, is no stranger to insurgencies, revolutions, rogue lore. Africa is, of course, no stranger to insurgencies, revolutions, rogue warlords, corrupt big men, and, most notably from Russia's perspective, vast reserves of natural resources. African strongmen wanted to hire soldiers unconcerned with human rights abuses to help them out in their plans to obtain or preserve power. Russia, meanwhile, wanted access to Africa's wealth from the ground, like diamonds, gold, and oil, without too much publicity. Wagner was the perfect solution. Now, Wagner operates all over Africa, but its four most notable regions of operation are the Central African Republic, Libya, Mali, and Sudan. We'll take a short look at Wagner's presence in these four countries. Around 1,300 to 1,400 Wagner fighters are in the Central African Republic, which is a former French colony sandwiched between Saharan Africa in the north and the Congo rainforest in the south. Wagner is in the country on invitation from Central African President Faustin Archange Touadera to combat a rebel movement that controls large swaths of the country. In Libya, meanwhile, Wagner is fighting for the rebels. Warlord Khalifa Haftar and his Libyan National Army, or LNA, control eastern Libya. But the global community recognizes the Tripoli-based government in the West as Libya's legitimate authority. Haftar has turned to Wagner for support. Over 2,000 Wagner mercenaries are estimated to be in Libya on behalf of the LNA. Mali, meanwhile, has been struggling for years to contain an Islamist insurgency. Its main supporter has been peacekeepers from Europe and the United Nations, but a 2021 coup installed new leadership that butted heads with the Europeans. With the peacekeepers set to shrink their presence in Mali, the military regime asked Wagner to step in. Wagner has an estimated 1,000 soldiers in Mali. The situation in Sudan is... A little more complex. Unlike the other countries, Wagner doesn't maintain an overt presence in the country, but instead is a major sponsor of the Rapid Support Forces, a paramilitary group currently fighting the government in Sudan's complex civil war, which started in April of this year and has no end in sight. The Russian government says that the mercenaries will stay in Africa. The only change will be their employer from Prigozhin to the Russian state directly. But there are signs the Wagner mercenaries themselves aren't too happy with some of the arrangements. 
Now, as far as the Central African Republic is concerned, Putin is trying to keep his influence in that country afloat. Anonymous sources told Bloomberg he is willing to let the company continue operations there. This is despite Putin recently claiming Wagner no longer exists. But the mood on the ground among the soldiers themselves is a little more complex. On July 5th, for example, between 400 and 600 Wagner employees left the Central African Republic after reportedly refusing to sign contracts with Russia's Ministry of Defense. An anonymous source within the Central African Ministry of Defense told Sky News that those four to 600 weren't the only ones wanting to leave. Now, the Central African Republic does retain an alliance with Russia and claims that if Wagner leaves or the situation there somehow changes, it will find alternate arrangements with Putin. But north to Libya, the situation is a little more precarious. Now, Wagner is one of Khalifa Haftar's biggest backers, and some speculate that without Wagner, Haftar wouldn't be able to hold his territory together. Far from being one united fighting force, the LNA is actually a network of different militias that have differing ideologies and loyalties. What connects them is that they are all one way or another under Haftar's influence. Foreign sponsorship, including from Wagner, gives Haftar some glue, so to speak, to keep his potpourri army together. Wagner leaving Libya could spell disaster for Haftar. The strength level of the forces fighting on his side would dwindle, but the LNA would also lose the financial connections Wagner would provide them with, the training from an experienced battle-hardened army like Wagner, and other benefits. Now, like what happened with the Central African Republic, Russia is downplaying the chaos with Wagner in regards to Libya. A few days after the coup attempt, a Russian envoy rendezvoused with Khalifa Haftar in Benghazi to assure him that Wagner wasn't leaving Libya. There will be no problems here, the envoy said, as relayed to the Guardian by a senior Libyan source. The envoy continued, There may be some changes at the top, but the mechanism will stay the same. The people on the ground, the money men in Dubai, the contacts, and the resources committed to Libya. This is news Haftar needed to hear. And the Russian government could involve itself more directly in Libya, or it could rely on Russia's myriads of other quasi-government mercenary companies. Russia does have little incentive to leave oil-rich Libya. But like with what's happening with the Central African Republic, the situation on the ground is a bit more complex than what official statements and messages from envoys may have us believe. With Wagner's questionable loyalties, for example, and the ongoing Ukraine war, which, aside from bogging down Russia in a part of the world closer to home, makes it a bit harder for Russian troops to travel through Western airspace or uh, Western seaways, for example, Russia's ability to reinforce its presence in North Africa is therefore more precarious than before. And there are reasons to suspect some in the LNA are also getting a little tired of Wagner. Though not independently verified, sources close to the LNA relay to Al Monar's suspicions that Haftar's forces may have been contemplating kicking Wagner out with America's blessing. Mohammed Erjar wrote on July 3rd, quote, Wagner's leadership has warned LNA commanders against any attempt to unilaterally remove Wagner from Libya in collaboration with the United States. Wagner has reportedly threatened that such a move would have consequences, end quote. Now, if this claim is true, it suggests the LNA and Wagner do not see eye to eye on everything. If the LNA was a trusted ally of Wagner, no such threat would have been needed. Wagner may have caught wind of some overtures to the Americans on their part. The implication is that the LNA, or at least a faction within them, wants Wagner out. The chaos and uncertainty after the coup attempt could be the best chance the LNA will get in a long time. Meanwhile, 
America has increased sanctions on corporations affiliated with Wagner. As of this year, this includes two Emirati companies. And this could dry up the funds from the so-called money men in Dubai. If Wagner becomes desperate for cash itself, they could become more of a liability for the LNA. So therefore, between Russia losing control of the group and the LNA moving on, Wagner's future in Libya is far from certain. This could have profound effects on the region's geopolitics. For one, the Libyan government could try to take over all of Libya. On June 30th, a drone from an unknown location struck a Wagner airbase in Libya. There were no casualties, and the Libyan government denied involvement, but they would have an incentive to push at Wagner post-coup, and they have relied on important drones to fight Wagner before. Then there is the civil war in Sudan. Wagner supports the rapid support forces through its presence in Libya, and if Wagner were to leave Libya, the Sudanese government could get the upper hand against those rebels. And finally, the situation in Mali also requires scrutiny. Mali's military regime is in no hurry for Wagner troops to leave the country. But meanwhile, last month, the United Nations voted to end its 12,000-strong peacekeeping force in the country. With Wagner's new complicated relationship with the Russian state, the mercenaries may be of limited help for Mali. The jihadists then could overwhelm the country, forcing Mali to look for outside help from sources like the UN or Europe once more. Time will tell what Wagner's future in Africa would be. But in a part of the world perennially used to turbulence and regime change, Wagner has been to a degree a stabilizing factor, even if it has stabilized some unsavory regimes. Any disruption in Wagner's power could be a chance for outside powers to gain influence. One power to watch is Iran. Iran and Russia are at the moment allies and they cooperate with each other in the Ukraine war, but Iran is always looking for ways to spread its influence abroad. Iran's primary goal is to spread its Islamic revolution worldwide, but it also supports despotic regimes with varying interests everywhere from Syria to Venezuela to Ethiopia. The Libyan government has connections with the Muslim Brotherhood, an international Islamist terror group. Iran also has links to the Muslim Brotherhood. A united Libya under the internationally recognized government could turn to Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei for support. But Iran isn't picky with who its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps supports. Haftar could reach out to the IRGC as Wagner's replacement. He may have little choice if he wants to keep his hold on power. Another potential supplier of soldiers is Europe. The Central African Republic and Mali are both former French colonies. Both are looking to Russia because they want less dependency on Europe, but if Wagner leaves and both countries struggle to contain their insurgencies, they may turn back to Europe out of desperation. The Bible prophesies that both Iran and Europe will increase their African footprints soon. Here is how Daniel 11 verses 40, 42, and 43 read. And at the time of the end will the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north will come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He will stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians will be at his steps. This is a prophecy about two kings, or power blocks, during the time of the end. The trumpet has for years identified the king of the north as a united German-led European power, and the king of the south as a radical Islamist power block led by Iran. The implication of the prophecy is that Egypt, Ethiopia, and Libya are allied with Iran, which is why Europe invades them together with the King of the South. Libya is not allied with Iran right now. Instead, countries like Russia are calling the shots. But the Bible prophesies that this will soon change. 
one way or another, Iran will get control of Libya. A power vacuum left by scrambling Russian mercenaries may be Iran's excuse to do so. But Europe invades Iran's African proxy empires from somewhere. Where is that? Here's a quote from trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury's book, The King of the South. Quote, Think about the key word in Daniel 11 verse 40. This verse describes an attack from the king of the north, but the emphasis is on the strategy of this military attack. If you are in a whirlwind, it whirls all around you. Even now, we can see that the German strategy is to surround Iran and its allies, end quote. Other African countries, perhaps including the Central African Republic and Mali, frantically looking for peacekeepers to deal with local problems, could be Europe's entry point into Africa. In time, these countries could serve as Europe's launch pad to surround Iran's allies in Africa. Russia has a lot of influence in Africa through the Wagner Group. But the Bible points to Iran and Europe controlling Africa soon. Putin's problems with Wagner could be the key that lets these two powers in. To learn more, request a free copy of The King of the South at thetrumpet.com. Back on July 16th of 1969, 54 years ago this week, Apollo 11 launched from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Inside the spacecraft were Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. For three days, they blasted through 240,000 miles of space, and then they entered lunar orbit. Two of the three crew, Armstrong and Aldrin, soon moved into a small vehicle called the Lunar Module. And on July 20th, at 4.17 p.m. Eastern Time, that module landed on the powdery surface of the moon. Shortly after that is when Neil Armstrong opened the door, climbed down the ladder, stood atop the foot pad at the base of the lunar module's leg, and then Neil Armstrong lifted his boot and extended it over a world that had been pondered by billions of people for thousands of years, but never touched by any human or other physical life. It was a realm where no beetle had ever scuttled, no grass blade had ever sprouted, not even a bacterium had ever lived there. All over the United States and even around the world, people watched his every move in black and white images broadcast on their TVs. The picture for viewers was grainy, but mankind stood still, held their breath, and lifted up their eyes. And at 10.56 p.m., Neil Armstrong's boot touched down on that soft, powdery dust on the surface of the moon, and his radio crackled. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. A few minutes later, Buzz Aldrin climbed down and joined Armstrong. The two of them erected an American flag. They set up experiments. They collected 47 and a half pounds of moon rocks. And they bounced all around that crater-pocked moonscape. Below, millions and millions of people stayed riveted to their TVs and radios. And then a short time later, during Apollo 11's flight back home, they heard Buzz Aldrin deliver quite a profound speech. Here's a little part of that. Personally, and reflecting the events of the past several days, a verse from the Psalms comes to mind to me. When I consider the heavens, 
the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Aldrin's decision to quote these words from Psalm 8 was, I think, a very profound one. These were the words written thousands of years earlier by King David as he gazed up at the stars and up at that same moon that Buzz Aldrin had just walked around on. David had marveled at God's creation, and he was especially enthralled at mankind's place within it. Later in the psalm, David noted that the same God who created the moon and the stars also created mankind to, quote, have dominion over much of his creation on earth. Pondering all of this left David awestruck. And then about a thousand years after King David, the Apostle Paul quoted some of those same words in his letter to the Hebrews. And Paul brought additional meaning to it, showing that it was not only the earthly creation that the Creator plans to give man, but God will place everything in subjection under mankind. That's what Paul wrote. And then in Hebrews 2 verse 8, in the Weymouth New Testament, it says, quote, This subjecting of the universe to man implies the leaving nothing not subject to him. But we do not as yet see the universe subject to him. So this shows that God made the entire universe for man. All of it will be put under mankind's control. That's what these scriptures reveal. The passage in Hebrews makes clear that the whole universe is not as yet under man's jurisdiction, but it says that it will be in the future. And this scripture is not an oversight. It's not a mistake or an exaggeration. The Bible actually contains numerous scriptures showing that the Creator's plan for man includes the whole vast universe. He has a universe-sized job for mankind. Mr. Gerald Flurry is the host of the Key of David program here on KPCG-FM, and he's also the editor-in-chief of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. And in July of 2009, he wrote an article about the lunar landing. He wrote, quote, The lunar landing in 1969 was so inspiring. It was as if the whole world was united for a brief moment in time. End quote. And then Mr. Flurry goes on to explain why this event, 54 years ago this week, unified and inspired the world. He writes, it captivated the world's attention because it projected mankind's vision far beyond this earth. This kind of vision, looking into the cosmos, it's something that the Bible discusses. Through the prophet Isaiah, God instructs human beings to look, to look out past our humble planet so that we'll see him and his power. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, lift up your eyes on high and behold, who has created these things? During that moment, 54 years ago this week, the people of the world did lift up their eyes. They lifted them 240,000 miles above Earth's surface. And what they were seeing was a glimpse of the Creator. They beheld His handiwork. They were given a black and white preview of humanity's color-drenched, life-filled future. A future centered on bringing life to the universe. God made the moon, that's clear from Genesis 1.16, and he also made the vast universe, which is stated in Isaiah 45.18. And then we see in Genesis 1.26-27 that God created mankind in his own image and endowed man with breathtaking mind power, modeled after his own. This mind power can make a seemingly impossible idea, such as launching a man to the moon and back, possible. On that day back in 1969, it really wasn't Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin or John F. Kennedy whose glory was on display. It wasn't the hundreds of thousands of scientists, engineers, and technicians whose brilliance was being showcased. And even though the event was instrumental in helping America show the world the superiority of capitalism over communism, it was not the U.S.'s glory that was on radiant display that day. 
It was actually God's. And that's why, as their eyes were lifted up, the people of the world were, at least on some level, humbled and unified. On some limited level, the people saw a glimpse of the Almighty and of His universe-spanning plan for mankind. And as we look back on this event in history, and as we look up into the night skies, we can be humbled and inspired by that same vision. We are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud or thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles that today's reports were based on. That's at thetrumpet.com. Also, you can email us any comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Josue Michels, Mihailo Zekic, and Andrew Miller. Thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And thanks very much to each of you for listening to today's episode. Until next time, keep watching your world.